Our reading today is found in Isaiah chapter 52, uh, 13 through chapter 53, the whole of chapter 53. And I'll ask now if you're willing and able to stand for the reading of God's word. And as you stand, remember that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Starting in chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before, before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acqu- acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for, this, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man. In his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put; he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, this text may be a familiar one for many of us who have grown up in or around the church. It's often referred to and quoted in sermons and Bible studies, and it's referenced many times throughout the the New Testament. I believe it's directly quoted at least 12 times in the New Testament. It's like a classic movie that we have seen so many times throughout the years that we can practically quote it word for word the entire way through, or at least recall large portions. 
Think of some of your favorites. Some of them might be playing around this time of the year. They stir up feelings of nostalgia and fun, thinking back to your childhood and watching with family and friends. But even though we, we've seen these favorite, our favorite movies many times, we're, if we're flipping through the channels on a Saturday afternoon with not much to do, wouldn't we turn to it? Even though it's halfway through because it's still, you still laugh, cry, or laugh until you cry as hard as you did the very first time when you first saw it. It still stirs up these emotions and it gets you every time. That's the reason that we love them. They're as good now as they were, or even better, when we first saw them. My hope is that we can look at this passage like that. That we might think back to times that it's referenced in sermons, Bible studies, or Sunday school. And we should always want to come back to this because it should get you every time. If this is the first time that you're hearing it, then praise God for that too. Because he works through his word. And this is one of the means of grace that he uses to reveal his true character to us, and I pray that he would use it today as a means of grace and growth in him. The hope today isn't to take an exhaustive dig into this passage, um, but instead to look at it more of as, as an overview. Try to put yourself in the shoes of the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts chapter 8, where Philip, who was one of the original apostles, Um, who walked and talked with Jesus, approaches this man, an official on the court of the queen of Ethiopia. And as Philip approaches, he hears the eunuch reading verses 7 and 8. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opens not his mouth. Justice was denied him, and his life is taken away from earth. He's reading directly from the scroll of Isaiah. The very verses that we're getting ready to dig into. Philip approaches him and asks if he understands what he's reading. The man responds, how can I, unless someone guides me? About whom does this prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? What a great question. Today, in a way, I have the privilege and joy of doing what Philip did. Acts 8 says that Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. Imagine this scene in the desert where it took place. Philip hears the man reading this passage, and he walks up to the eunuch in, this, in, this, in his chariot. He strikes up a conversation with a, an engaging question. Do you understand what you're reading in that scroll? And the man answers him. I imagine that when this eunuch responded back to him, Philip, and with these questions, Philip thanks God, gets a big smile on his face, and says, let me tell you about the good news of Jesus. It's as easy as that. That's my goal today. So let's look at this final servant song in Isaiah. And as I was attempting to boil this down to one big idea or a takeaway thought, uh, I came up with this sentence to summarize it. The Lord will accomplish his redemptive purposes through this sinless suffering and sufficient service. Servant. The Lord will accomplish his redemptive purposes through this sinless, suffering, and sufficient servant. Some have described this passage as the focal point of Isaiah's vision. This is what everything has built up to. This is what Israel has been longing to hear about. This was describing the coming Savior, or a servant of God, whom they had been waiting for, praying for, hoping for throughout the entirety of the Old Testament for hundreds of years. This coming Savior had been presented a little clearer each time through the servant songs that we have studied. 
You might say that this servant, as described in these four servant songs, is the key to unlocking the theology and the fullness of the book of Isaiah. And as you unlock the fullness of the book of Isaiah, you're unlocking the beauty and the glory of a magnificent God. This is not the only place where Isaiah saw him, the servant, but here in this passage is the clearest picture that Isaiah received of the type of suffering that that servant of the Lord would have to endure. This is the clearest picture in the entire Old Testament that brings forth the idea of God's servant, his chosen Messiah, the one who would come to rule and reign in the line of David, had to suffer brutally. As you get a better picture of this suffering, you understand and you can put the pieces together of who this servant truly is, and that is the hope for today. We'll look through this passage in five sections, because there are five evenly broken up stanzas here, and as it is written in poetic form. It's also, it has a general flow from success to suffering, then back to success. The stanzas are broken up nicely into three verses each. So it begins with the success of the servant. The next piece is rejection of the servant. The next is redemption. The fourth is silence. And the fifth is glory. And I'll reiterate as we go through uh, for you note takers like myself. So the first This passage begins, in a way, with the end in mind, the success. In verses 13 to 15 of chapter 52, Isaiah summarized this servant and essentially the next chapter where he will give more vivid description of what's coming. He starts with the success of this coming servant. It opens reminiscent of Isaiah 42, the first servant song that we looked at, with, Behold my servant. Pastor Colin preached on this about four weeks ago, and in that passage, God gives the first picture of this coming servant. He says, God says, I will uphold him. He is my chosen. My soul delights in him. I will put my spirit upon him, and much more. But the point is to draw us back to this picture of the same coming servant. All that was originally said of this servant still holds true in this passage, but we're now about to get an even clearer picture in the coming picture, in the coming chapter of who he really is. This is how God reveals himself to his people. He does it progressively through time and history by his word. Here, he's about to put another piece on the puzzle, so to speak, so that his people will see the picture even more clearly as more pieces are added throughout the years culminating in this beautiful picture of God's grace and redemption for mankind. In this passage, we get a picture of the servant, one who is peaceful but powerful, rejected but redemptive. The servant is peaceful but powerful, and he is rejected, but he's redemptive. It's as if Isaiah starts at the end because if he doesn't, If he doesn't explain how this servant is going to be successful, then no one will believe it. So he starts with how the servant will act wisely. He will prosper. He will be successful in what he has been chosen by God to do. Because of this success, he will be high and lifted up and exalted because of his great work. The Lord himself will glorify this servant. Then it's as if the tone changes from how the servant would be exalted and glorious to how he will have to suffer. 
Verse 14 tells the listeners that they will be astonished at how this servant looks. The vision that Isaiah sees is one of someone being so mangled, distorted, and disfigured that he doesn't even look human anymore. If you saw him, if you saw this person, you would think, what happened to them? As one commentator put it, after he was beaten, no one was asking, is this the servant of the Lord? But rather, they were asking, is that even human? This verse foreshadows what, that which is coming in the next chapter. And then chapter 52 ends with this picture of how God will vindicate his servant, even though he was beaten beyond recognition. We'll see the vindication of the servant in the wording used in verse 15. God says that he will sprinkle many nations. Now this sprinkling is consistent with what the priests did with the offerings at the temple for sin under the Old Testament. Leviticus 4.6 states that the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord and in front of the veil of the sanctuary. This might seem odd to us because we don't think in this way, but under the sacrificial system at the time when Isaiah wrote this, this would have made perfect sense in their minds, and they would have been drawn to their traditions. They would think directly to the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. This is when the high priest of Israel would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies, which was only allowed to be entered one time in the year by the high priest of Israel. Because of, this, because of this, Israel, as a nation, would be considered clean or fit to be in the presence of God. But before doing this, before the priest went into the Holy of Holies, he first had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. The priest, the high priest of Israel, was not sinless. He was, not, he was just as guilty as the people that he had to make atonement for in this sin sacrifice. This statement gives us a foreshadowing of a coming greater priest. The statement, oh, sorry. uh, He is, here in this passage, we see the servant will also sprinkle the nations. Not just the nation, a.k.a. Israel. This coming servant would be offering atonement for those outside of Israel, who was, at this point, the only covenant people of God. This ties directly back to what Pastor Troy preached on uh, from the second servant song, about God's salvation reaching to the ends of the earth through this servant. In the last few verses of chapter 52, God is telling Isaiah, and by extension, his people, keep watch for this servant who's coming. Tell my people of this servant. Not that they're going to listen, but tell them anyways. When he comes, he will be successful in, fi- in fulfilling my plan for him. And because of that, he will be exalted and lifted high. He will also suffer beyond our, comp- our human comprehension, but this suffering is not for nothing. Through this suffering, he will stand in the role of the high priest and will atone or make amends for the sins of my people. Oh, And by the way, my people will not just be the the nation of Israel, but will include people from every nation of my created world. Now, we move into the second section, rejection. Chapter 53, verses 1 to 3, presents this rejected servant. It begins with questions, almost as if Isaiah is scratching his head in amazement. Who has believed this? Who 
will understand this. To, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He seems to be asking God these questions out of confusion and bewilderment. The arm of the Lord here is a metaphor for God's saving power or for his salvation. We can gain a better insight into him using this phrase by looking at another passage from earlier in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 52:10 says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Again, we see this salvation being extended, um, extended beyond just Israel. Through this servant, God's salvation would be made clear. And ultimately, only through this servant would salvation through the arm of the Lord be extended. Isaiah is exclaiming, this is unbelievable. Who will believe this? It's beyond our comprehension. Who will understand this? He's wrestling and maybe a bit ashamed, and I'm sure deeply saddened by what God is revealing to him. Verses 2 and 3, taken another step, speaking of how this servant would grow up among God's chosen people, but they wouldn't acknowledge him for who he was. In fact, they would despise and reject him. This is a warning and a prophecy to these very people, a people group who God had made a covenant with through their forefather Abraham, where God said that through his descendants, them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But they're struggling with living up to this call, and they're also often found to be very inwardly focused, and Isaiah sees this. He's saying, how can people in other nations get this? How can they understand this? But your own people, the people who you have revealed yourself to throughout the ages, cannot understand it. Why won't we, your people, esteem your servant? Why won't we hold him in high regard? He sees this vision of the servant growing up like a plant in dry desert soil with little nutrients or water. The servant was going to show, grow up among the Jews, God's chosen people, who were looking for this prophesied servant, but because of their unbelief, he grows up in what is described as dry ground. He would be one of them, but would they believe him? According to the New Testament, no. At least not initially, although some did eventually. The servant would be rejected by the Jews. The religious leaders would hate him. Does this sound familiar to you? Does it stir up thoughts of someone else we know this to be true of? It should. The Apostle John, in John chapter 12, 36 to 43, quotes directly from Isaiah 53, 1 and Isaiah 6, speaking of the, the unbelief of the Jewish people who had seen Jesus perform miracles. Now, you may be asking why I'm using the servant of God here and the name Jesus synonymously, so let me show you and tell you why. Because you just saw, as you just saw in John, the writers of the New Testament clearly present Jesus as this servant of God, without question and without hesitation. John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How often is this true of us as well? To put it in a different way, how often do we fear man rather than fear the Lord? 
Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man is the downfall of these blind and unbelieving Jews. This rejection of the servant of Jesus ties directly back to what is prophesied in Isaiah 50, which Seth preached on last week. See how this final servant song ties all of these together with this beautiful little bow right in time for Christmas? God's word is amazing in its unity. In Isaiah, we see that a reflection of the servant of God, or a rejection of the servant of God, is a rejection of God himself, a rejection of the arm of the Lord, his salvation. These people rejected him out of unbelieving, hardened hearts, even though many saw him perform miracles in their presence. Things that were physically impossible were done before their eyes, but what did they do? They scoffed. But before we start accusing them of being crazy, how often do we, do people still reject God, even with the fullness of God revealed through the entirety of the New Testament? Now. How often do we hear people make the claim that they believe that Jesus is a, was a real person, or that he was a good teacher, but he wasn't God? How often do we, even as Christians, have trouble believing the promises of God even though we have never seen him present as anything but faithful to his word? Does our suffering cause us to overlook his goodness? have, Have we become so self reliant and comfortable that we think that we're good without him? Have we allowed the fear of man to overshadow this beauty, his beauty, and to point? to a point where we are fearful of sharing the good news with those that we come in contact with? Let us examine our hearts and see where we might be struggling to believe the Savior who humbled himself, the servant who lived a life of grief and rejection, the one who was regarded by many as the lowest of the low. Why is this? Why do we see such a bleak picture of God's servant? Would we have treated him, the servant, any better? If we, grew up, or if, he, if we grew up around him, would we regard him or see him as worthy? Honestly, probably not. I probably would have followed suit with the religious leaders for fear of man rather than for fear of God. I wouldn't have been any different than these unbelieving Jews, and I'm no different than them now, but for the grace of God, even now. But for, the, for God's grace that has worked in the lives of his people, and that brings us to the pivotal section in this passage, uh, verses 4 to 6. And they are the heart of this, third, or of, this, of this servant song in the third section, redemption. They present the desperate need that is at hand, man's sin which causes this servant to have to suffer. Isaiah makes the statement in verse 4 that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. How does he know that? What does he mean? There's a logical flow here from what we know of the verses that came before and the picture we already have of how this servant will suffer. Now we have the reason revealed to us for the suffering. We hear the reason that this servant would be mangled beyond recognition. The reason that this servant had to suffer was to stand in the place for his people. He would be their substitute, and through his suffering, they would be healed. 
He was taking the punishment upon himself so that his people would not have to bear it. This, there is a running theme throughout Isaiah and in fact throughout scripture that poses the question of if God is perfectly holy and just and righteous, how can he ever justify the wicked? If God is perfectly holy, just, and righteous, how can he justify anyone who is wicked? In other words, how can God's holiness and man's sinfulness be reconciled? Here's the answer. Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He, this servant, Jesus Christ, was the offspring who could crush the head of the servant, or the serpent, as promised in Genesis 3. He was the answer that God's people had been longing for since God made that promise. He will be stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, and wounded for his sheep, the same sheep that have gone astray into their own sin and depravity. Does this make you feel sheepish? It does me. Do you see yourself here in this text? As a sheep who has turned to his or her own way trying to make your own path to righteousness or find another way? Stop. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Salvation is found nowhere else but in this servant who suffered in the place of his people. Your sin, my sin, is the reason that this, su- this servant had to suffer. It's the reason that Jesus had to suffer. This is clear in the text. But it's God's grace here that's on full display. And it overshadows even our sinful fallenness. And that his grace is greater because this God is merciful. And his love is put on full display right here in this passage. And that brings us to the fourth section, silence. And this is verses 7 through 9. We see a silent, sinless lamb, the lamb of God who willingly faces, faces the punishment for the sins of his people. Isaiah is seeing the good news of the gospel unveiled, unraveled, literally before his eyes. Christ's death and resurrection is pivotal. It's so important that about a third of the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are taken up by recordings of just one week of his life, the final week of Jesus' life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 where he, he says that Christ, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Jesus himself points to the importance of his suffering, death, and resurrection multiple times throughout the Gospels to show that it was to fulfill the Scriptures, to fulfill the, pro- the prophecies and promises that were made throughout the Old Testament, which God progressively gave to his people. But Christ also had to live perfectly for this to be true. For Jesus not to just be willing but able to die in, this, in the place of sinners, he had to be perfect. How often do we think or meditate on this fact? I do not do it often or nearly enough. The servant here is presented as completely sinless. If he sinned one time, if there's just one instance in which he was out of line with the will of God the Father, 
then he would not have been sufficient to atone for his own sins, let alone yours and mine and every other single person who has, who has counted among his people throughout the years. Think back to how we talked about the high priest on the Day of Atonement. That priest had to first make an offering for his own sin to purify himself because he alone was not holy and not righteous. Those high priests did not live perfectly upright lives. The high priest in the Old Covenant was insufficient and in fact just pointing forward to the need for a perfect high priest. The same way that the Old Covenant sacrifices that we have looked at also pointed forward to the need for a perfect and final sacrifice that would sufficiently atone for the sins of God's people once and for all. This brings us to the final section of this passage, glory. In verses 10 to 12, we see the success of this suffering servant again, which in turn reveals his glory. Verse 10 starts with an astonishing statement, and probably why Isaiah started the passage with the end first. In our feeble, short-sighted, fallible human minds, it makes no sense. It was God's will to put this servant to death and to crush him. That's so backwards in our minds. The good one is killed for the bad, and it's God's plan. The hero here is dying for the villain. Just like what was stated in verse 4, where he was smitten by God, we see again here that God is the one who orchestrated this plan. This passage is one of the greatest pictures we have of substitutionary atonement, which is a theological term that many have and still take issue with. It's defined by putting the two words together, and we have already looked at it somewhat indirectly, but I want to look at it directly substitutionary, one who stands in the place of someone else, an atonement, making payment for something that was wrong. Put these two together, and you have someone who stands in the place of someone else and makes amends for the wrongs that that person has done. And this is what we see here in this passage. A sinless party, the servant, who stands in the place as a substitute for his people, the sheep who have wandered in sin. And he takes the punishment that they deserve, the wrath of God against sin. How that plays out is described in 2 Corinthians 5.21 clearly. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Some have wrongfully called this cosmic child abuse because God the Father punishes God the Son on our behalf. But to say that is to wrongfully pit the will of God the Father against the will of God the Son. We've already seen that this servant, Jesus, went willingly to the cross, and that's the key here. Hebrews 12, 2 states that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's his joy to redeem sinners. It's his joy to reconcile you to his father. We will sing of this great truth in a few minutes. God and sinners reconciled in one of the greatest Christmas hymns there is. If you look 
at this through the scope of the entire Bible, through the entirety of God's redemptive plan, you see that this was the plan since before the foundation of the earth, before time began. We read in Acts 2.23 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. This is the gospel. This is the good news, the best news that the world will ever hear. And this is one of the clearest presentations that you will find in the entire Bible of the good news of Christ. This is the most incredible picture of grace and love that you will ever behold in your lifetime. That God would create mankind, that mankind, you and I, along with everyone else, would sin and rebel against him. And God, instead of crushing us, which we deserve, would rather, out of his abundant love and steadfast mercy, he would send his son, born in human flesh, born of a virgin, so he was not born through the line of the sin of Adam, but rather born of the Spirit of God, sinless and spotless. To live a perfect life, sinless life, under God's holy and perfect law, then to suffer persecution, grief, affliction, hatred at the hands of mankind, the very creatures that he created. Then to be wrongfully accused, sentenced to death, but go willingly, silently, like a lamb led to slaughter. Crucified and killed, drinking the entirety of the cup of God's righteous wrath against sin as the offering and sacrifice for the guilt of those that would be called his offspring according to his purpose. He would be buried and raised again on the third day. Through through his death and resurrection, he took your sin and gave you his righteousness. We call this the great exchange. Then he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father forever. But he isn't done. He's making intercession for the transgressors as this, as this message ends. If you believe this good news, then he's praying for you. And if he has begun a good work in you, then he will see it through to completion. And will, you will live forever with him in glory. This is the hope of the gospel. And it's the hope that we look forward to. It's the truth of none other than this suffering, rejected, redemptive, and glorious servant, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Do you see how clearly this servant song points to the one who came to serve, not to be served? Do you see the direct correlation between the picture of the servant fulfilling the role of the high priest and of our great high priest, Jesus Christ? Do you, as John the Baptist did, as he was preparing the way for this coming Savior, do you see the connection between this silent, sinless lamb and cry out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lord has accomplished his redemptive purposes through this sinless, suffering, and sufficient servant. Oh, that he would give us eyes to see and a deeper affection for him on a daily basis. Amen.